verse 1 of Mark chapter 5. So everybody got a Bible so you can read along with this? All right. Chapter 5 of Mark's Gospel. And we do read in verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And we read in verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. So let's pray. Father, we just ask that this morning as we've come into your presence, just worshipping you and drawn close to you, that now we would hear from you. And Lord, I pray that you would bless this time as your word goes forth. And as we discussed last week, that... Lord, may our hearts be like fertile soil as the seed is sown upon our hearts. May it take root there and, Lord, blossom and be planted. And, Lord, may it produce fruit. I pray that you would touch our hearts deeply this morning. And we would be attentive to the things that you desire to show us and teach us this morning. And, Lord, I do pray that we, again, would have expectation that, Lord, you're going to do a marvelous work as your word goes forth, because it is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, as it pierces our hearts. So may we be free from distractions, and Lord, may we be attentive to you. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So as we open up chapter 5, we saw that Jesus would come to the other side of the sea. And recall in the previous chapter that Jesus was in a boat. He was teaching the multitudes in parables as he was giving those parables, he was teaching them on faith. And so whenever there is a teaching, there will come testing. And so we discussed all those parables that Jesus would teach them in chapter 4. And then we saw that he would turn to his disciples and, and said to them, let's go to the other side of the sea. They would be going from the northwest side, the area of Capernaum, over to the east side, to this area of the Gadarenes. And of course, as we saw, that after the teaching on faith would come testing on faith as they would endure a storm while they're on their way to the east side. Jesus was asleep in the boat, and the disciples woke him up and said, don't you care that we perish because this violent storm was so bad that it was filling up the boat with water. And Jesus arose, and he rebuked the winds, and all of a sudden, the wind stopped, the sea was calm, and they marveled. They said, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? But then Jesus rebuked the disciples. He would say to them, why are you afraid? Why do you doubt in your heart? Because, you see, Jesus had given them his word. He said, let's go to the other side. He did not say that we're going to sink, we're going to drown, we're, we're going to make it part of the way. He said, we're going to go to the other side of the sea. And as you open up chapter 5, you see that indeed they made it. They came to the other side of the sea. They come to the country of the Gadarenes at this time. Now, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and into Israel, into the promised land that God gave to them, 
there was two and a half tribes that would settle on the east side of the Jordan River and on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. There was the half-tribe of Manasseh, there was the tribe of Reuben, and then there was also the tribe of Gad. And the tribe of Gad was settled in this area on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, thus it was the area of the Gadarenes. And as they come to that side, they get out of a boat, and all of a sudden they are met with this man who is demon-possessed. And we're talking really strange here, because... This man was shackled, and he would just break the shackles. He would tear apart the chains. He was tormented. He would cry out day and night. He was one that uh, would terrorize the people in that area. And so we are going to see that he had many demons in him, as his name's going to be Legion, which means many. And so here is this man. He sees Jesus, this man who's demon-possessed. He runs to him, and verse 6 says that he would stop and worship him. Now, that word worship in verse 6 does not speak of submission or surrender to Jesus, but it is just an acknowledgement in realizing who he is. They, those demons are in the presence of the Son of God. So they're not worshiping affectionately, but rather the demons realize intellectually who Jesus Christ is. So here is this individual with all these demons in him, and, and realization comes on the demon's part that Jesus, being fully man, is also fully God. So James says in his epistle, the devils believe and tremble, and we know that here these Demons are trembling because they know who he is. They're quivering in their boots. They're aware of his presence. We continue to read here in verse 7, And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Torment me. Verse 8, For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. In Luke's account of this story, it tells us that the demons begged Jesus not to throw them into the abyss. That is, to be locked up in that holding place. And they know that Jesus has authority over them. Satan knows that his time is short and that he's going to be chained up, according to Revelation chapter 19, thrown into that bottomless pit, thrown into that abyss. His time will come when that will happen. But we know that Satan, the work that he's doing, that what demonic forces desire to do to men and women who don't know Jesus Christ, we see that here in this text to this man that is being demonized by all these demons. We see that Satan, what he wants to do, men, what demons want to do to men, here he is hiding in tombs. He's cutting himself. He's crying. He's wailing. He, he's naked. He's obscene. He is being tormented. And there are people in our lives that we know that are in our families and those who we work with and live along next to that they don't know Christ. And Satan is working overtime on them because he's a destroyer. He's trying to destroy their families. He's a deceiver, deceiving them and holding them in bondage to, to sin and, and blinding them. That's what the scripture says that, God, that Satan does to the unbeliever. He brings a blindness to them. 
And so we need to pray for them. And so here it is being brought to this man in a very dramatic way. Matthew's narrative tells us that there were actually two men that were demon-possessed at this time. Mark here focusing on one of those men. So here he is cutting himself. He's, he's going wild. People are afraid of him. And that's what Satan does to a man or a woman, just making them go out of their minds, bringing bondage to them and all of this because he is the destroyer. But now we're going to see what the Savior is going to do to this man. Jesus is going to liberate and free this man. Verse 11. Now there was a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned into the sea. And those who were uh, fed the swine... Um, those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And so there was this herd of swine, pigs, on the hillside there. And the demons cry out to Jesus, Hey, give us permission to go into that herd of swine. So Jesus permitted those demons to go into the herd of swine. And, of course, this is where devil ham was invented at this time. And the swine, <laughs> swine ran down the hill into the sea and they ended up drowning now as we look at the old testament as most of you know the dietary laws of the old testament the mosaic law it was forbidden meat uh pork was and and so these jews that were raising these swine were really conducting an illegal operation it was an illegal venture to raise swine because pork was an uh, not kosher it was a forbidden food for them to eat and and no, no doubt it's the reason why the lord allowed them those demons to permission to go into the swine and he got rid of this illegal industry as far as the jews were concerned but we continue reading in verse 15 and then they came to jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind and they were afraid and those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him in all marvel. And so Jesus comes into the situation and we see that as he touched that man, he was sitting, verse 15, this man who was demon-possessed with all these demons. He's sitting, he has peace, he's clothed in his right mind, um, he, he is freed from these demons. And that is the work of Jesus in our lives. As we surrender to him, as we come to him, we are clothed. As we come in faith, we are clothed, first of all, with his righteousness, the one who is in him in faith. We are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And we are free from sin, aren't we? We are free from the penalty of sin as we have forgiveness of sin because of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross. And we are free from the power of sin in our lives. And we are free from the hold that Satan has on us in this world. And Jesus also gives us a sound mind. This man was out of his mind. And all of a sudden he's sitting and he has a right mind and he's being freed and he's clothed once again. And that's what Jesus does for you and for me, for anyone who comes to him. But what amazes me here is the reaction of the people. They were afraid. And what they do is they ask Jesus to leave. Rather than being grateful that this poor man was helped and healed, they were upset because they lost the swine. They were more interested in the pigs than they were in this person who was being tormented. They were more interested in their money than the mercy that God had just extended to this individual. And so here they are, they're telling Jesus to leave. We want you to leave. We don't want you to stay here. And they were upset because no doubt they lost the pigs that as they saw their prophets now floating belly up in the sea there. And so they come to Jesus and they plead with Jesus, come and leave. And I think that Verse 17 here is a very tragic verse that we read in Mark chapter 5. Here is a guy who's running naked and wild in the hills. We can handle that. But we lost our, our swine, our pigs. We lost our prophet, and that we can't handle. One of the things that, that we hear about more and more, that's happening more and more, is there are those who get upset when you come to Jesus Christ. There are those family members and those that live around you or work alongside of you. Perhaps they will get upset because you've come to Jesus Christ and now you're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and you're freed from sin and you have the mind of Christ that you are pursuing. As Paul would emphasize to us in the book of Philippians, you're to have the mind of Christ, not the mind of the world any longer, but those things aside. And there are people that will get upset, but what I think is very tragic and and what we hear and see more of today is when I see kids and, and teenagers that will come to Christ and their parents are upset about it. You know, my, my teenager who was involved in all kinds of, of worldly things and carnality and perhaps in drugs and alcohol and immorality and they come to Christ, they're changed and their parents don't like it. They're upset and it's a tragic thing that we see more in the day in which we're living in. And the reaction of these people are it's tragic. This man, these two individuals, as Matthew again tells us, they were actually two, are freed up by the Lord, and they're wanting the Lord to leave. We're more concerned about the money that we lost. So leave us. And Jesus gets in the boat, and he gets ready to sail, because he will not force his way into anyone's life. If you tell him to go, he will go. And I think that Jesus is going with a broken heart. And Jesus gets ready to sail. He goes to this man who comes to him and says, I want to go with you. And he says, no, you go be a witness to those that you know, your friends. Go home to your family. Tell them the great things that the Lord has done and the compassion that he has had on you. And that's what a witness does. The Lord has so much for us. He has done so much. He has saved us. We're forgiven. We have a right mind. We've been free from the bondage of sin. He lives inside of us. We've obtained a mercy and His grace and His compassion. So share that with others. He has freed me is what you get to tell them. 
But there's one more point that I'd like to make, and then we're going to move on. And one thing that I notice here in this little vignette, this story, that there were three requests that were given and offered to Jesus. First of all, notice again that the demons asked to be cast into the swine, and Jesus said yes. Then the people came along and said, we want you to leave. You're bad for a pig business. We want you to depart from here. Jesus said yes. And then this young man, who was now freed of the demons, a believer, I believe at this point, says, Jesus, I want to go with you. And Jesus says no. He says no to him. As a father, and I know that you realize this as a parent, any of us that are parents or grandparents, that oftentimes our children will come to us and make requests, won't they? They'll say, I want to go here, I want to watch this, I want to have that, I want to participate in, in that. And as parents, oftentimes we will say no to them. And perhaps they will protest, perhaps they will say, what do you mean? Why can't I have this? Why can't I do this? Why can't I watch this? Everybody else is doing it. And we say to them, no, because we love you. Your mom and dad, your grandfather, your grandfather loves you, whatever it might be. I say to my kids, you know what, Barbara, Luke, Rachel, David, I don't have any control over other people, what everybody else is doing and having and watching, but I do love you guys, and I'm responsible for you, and that's why I'm saying no. You're not going to go here. You're not going to have this. You're not going to watch that. So the thing for us to remember as a child of God, when the Lord says no to us, when he closes a door in our lives, not to get all bummed out and not to get all bitter about it, but actually to rejoice about it because he loves you. And it shows that you are a child of his. The demons, he would say, go ahead if you want to pig out. He would say to the people, you want me to leave? I'm going to leave. But to the one who's a child of God, oftentimes he will say no. And you will discover in your life that sometimes no is a very, very wonderful answer. And we can look back, and I know that I can look back on my life where the Lord said no at times, and I am very thankful that he did say no because you know why? He had something better. Or he wanted me to wait. Or it wasn't the right time. Or he was doing something else in my life. And I know that he's going to give me the very best. He's not going to withhold anything that is good for me. And, and he's not going to withhold anything that's going to be a blessing to me. And it's the same with you as a child of God. And that includes saying no sometimes to us. So rejoice when he does that. And when he works in that way in your life, he's answering prayer. He'll answer prayer by either saying yes or he'll say no at times. Sometimes he'll say wait. But in those times where he does say no, know that he's shown his love to you and what is best for you. He's already given us the very best. That is his son, Jesus Christ. And know that he's going to continue to do what is best in your life. In verse 21, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and, and um, he was by the sea. So Jesus responds to the request of those in the area of the Gadarenes to leave. He, he leaves and a man demonized, running naked through the hills we can handle but not you, so you need to go, Lord. So he returns back towards the west side of the lake. And there the multitudes had been there previously, as we saw in chapter 4. They're waiting, the masses, the crowds. And, and there are particularly two individuals now that the rest of Mark chapter 5 focuses on. 
They're eager to see the Lord. And Mark records for us these two individuals, and we see their story told as verse 22. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. So as we look at the, the Old Testament, again, I want to remind you that it was the synagogues that would be placed in those cities wherever there was 10 Jewish males. That was a practice that began after the captivity of Babylon. So the Jews, the house of Judah, went into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. They could no longer worship at the temple. Matter of fact, the temple would be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. So what they did is they began to practice, as they were off in captivity, of the synagogues. And so they would meet at those places of worship and they would read the scriptures. And then that practice continued after Cyrus gave the decree that the Jews could return back to Jerusalem. So the Jews at that time, after the 70 years of captivity, would really be dispersed throughout the nations of the known world. And so they had the practice of the synagogues. It was not a place where they would sacrifice, but it was a place of worship. And so the synagogue, as I mentioned to you, started whenever there was 10 Jewish males or more in a city, in a village. And each synagogue had 10 leaders who were called elders. And of those 10, one was selected by the other nine to be the ruler. And the ruler of the synagogue had a very important position. He would be a very influential individual in their city or village. They were ones that, because they were the ruler of the synagogue, they were given power. They usually were prosperous or more prosperous financially than the rest of the people. They had influence. They were of importance, reputation. And it must have been, think about this. If you've been with us here on Sunday mornings going through Mark's gospel, it must have been very difficult for Jairus to come to Jesus at this point. Matthew's account of this story indicates that Jesus is back in Capernaum, where the multitudes are. And remember back in chapter 3, that Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jairus, being the ruler of the synagogue, would have been in that place when Jesus has this confrontation with the religious leaders. And it was the religious leaders that were upset at Jesus because they believed he had violated the Sabbath law, first of all, by his disciples plucking heads of grain out there in the field on the Sabbath day. But then that, that dispute would go into the synagogue and Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. And it was after that event that the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the political leaders of the Jews, that is the Herodians, would band together and now they're plotting to put Jesus to death. So the, the synagogues really aren't open to Jesus' ministry. And that's where confrontation was. And Jairus, no doubt, was there in that synagogue when those religious leaders of the land were plotting to put Jesus to death, were upset when, when they were furious. And Jairus is kind of stuck in this situation. And all of a sudden now his daughter is sick and at the point of dying. Yet Jairus was willing to risk his position and his reputation because death was about ready to creep into his family. So Jesus, or Jairus comes to Jesus, falls on his feet, verse 23, begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jairus now has to leave his privileged position and he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, My little girl lies at the point of death. Come and heal her. Luke's gospel tells us that she was 12 years old. 
And those of you with children, really children of any age, to see our children sick, to see them suffering, to see them hurting moves us more than almost anything else. And to see his little girl suffering would move Jairus to go and see Jesus. Luke's gospel also tells us that it was his only daughter. And so to see his girl sick, dying, no doubt, would move him. And he comes as Jairus is facing face to face with death. And he knew what to do. He went to Jesus. He ran the risk of losing his prominent position, his wealth, his reputation, in order to save this little girl's life. For 12 years, she had brought joy and laughter and happiness into Jairus' home. And no doubt, he's in agony because his only little girl was being threatened with death. So he seeks Jesus out. And he sees the crowds. They're pressing in on Jesus. So in desperation, he pushes through the crowds and he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs them, please, please, my little girl is at the point of death. Just lay your hands on her and she'll be healed. So verse 24, Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So here, as you picture this, Jesus and Jairus on their way to the ruler's house. Our Lord responding to this man's agony and request. So Jesus goes with him. And on the way, Mark tells us that in the crowd was a woman who had an issue of blood, a flow of blood, and that had been taking place for 12 years. And notice the emphasis in this story on the number 12. The little girl, we know, was 12 years old. This woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. And notice the contrast between the two people that this paragraph focuses on. For the last 12 years, Jairus' house was filled with laughter and joy. And now there is tragedy. And for those same 12 years, this woman was suffering incredibly. She had spent all of her money to get help to no prevail. Matter of fact, she had gotten worse. For 12 years, her life is in turmoil in pain and suffering. She spends all that she has to get better, but she doesn't. And I find the contrast to be very interesting here. And maybe this morning, there might be some of you that perhaps, for the last 12 years, so to speak, maybe 12 months, there has been great joy and happiness and blessing and delight in your life. Just as Jairus had experienced with his daughter for 12 years. And you've been blessed and you praise God and we should praise God. And we pray that that continues. But here's the thing. You don't know what tomorrow brings. And difficulty and hardship can strike unexpectedly. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And the reason that I'm pointing it out is, is not to bring worry to you uh, or to bring an undue burden to your heart this morning, but to say this, that all of us would be wise to, yes, be thankful if you're going through a time of blessing and prosperity and a time of, of peace and, and real joy. Things are looking good. Things are looking up. Yes, thank you, Lord. Continue to. I pray that it continues to happen. But I do want to say this. 
All of us would be wise not to grow lax at this time and say, well, this is a time to kick back and just kind of watch the tube and it doesn't really matter if I'm praying. It doesn't really matter if I'm studying the Bible or in fellowship with other believers because we don't know what tomorrow brings. And then you will need to call upon that which you have been building into your life during those years, those months, those weeks of blessing, of prosperity. Difficulties and hardships strikes at all of us. I think that we know that, don't we? And maybe your last 12 years have been tremendously blessed or 12 months or 12 days, whatever it might be, and easy. But we do know that difficulties and hardships come into all of our lives at some point in our lives. The scripture says that it rains on the just and on the unjust. Paul writes that no temptation is common to you except what is common to all men. We do have difficulties. Jesus said you will have tribulation. But then he went on to say, be of good joy, for I have overcome the world. So if you're going through a good season, rejoice. But what I'm saying is also prepare. Now's the time more than ever to continue to be in the Word, to be worshiping the Lord, to be growing in the Lord, growing in faith, because then when the difficulties do come, then you can be standing fast in the Lord. And you'll have those resources that you've been building upon, building upon a firm foundation, as Jesus said, that when the wind storms, you're going to be able to stand. And you're, he's going to see you through that time in a way that, that is going to be so much easier for you because you've been preparing, you've been close to the Lord, you continue in growing in the Lord. Now the other side of the spectrum is this. Others of you may be sitting here saying, well, these last 12 years, the last 12 months, the last 12 weeks, the last 12 days, the last 12 hours, they sure have been tough and miserable. I got good news. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what miracle is going to happen. At some point, the Lord is going to come into your situation in a way that will be absolutely amazing if you seize the opportunity when you hear as this woman did that the Lord is coming. You, said she, you see, she could have very easily have said, you know, I'm hemorrhaging, I'm hurting, I've spent all my money on medical help, I'm just getting worse, and, and I've gone through all these difficulties, it's been 12 years, and if Jesus knows, wants to help me, he knows where I live, and he wants to find me, I'll be at my own house, and he can come there, and he can bless me, and and, and I see that sometimes happening in the hearts of individuals when they're hurting, when they're going through difficulties, when, when they have hardships in their life. Well, I'm just going to sit at home, and if God wants to speak to me, then he can just come and speak to me there. Rather, we need to be in a place where you know that the Lord is traveling. And where is that? He promises that he'll be in the midst of his people. He promises that he'll be heard in the word as you read the word. He promises to be responsive to prayer. He promises to, to draw close to you as you worship him. And we know these things. This woman, when she heard where he was, she said, I've got to get over there. I've got to get to the place where Jesus is moving through and just see what might happen. Remember, the crowds are great here, and this woman is going to have to push her way through that crowd to get to Jesus. This woman is going to be healed miraculously. It's going to be recorded for all of history because she had the wisdom to expend the energy to break through the crowds and say, I've got to touch him. 
I got to touch him. And so you got this interesting contrast. So what does this woman do? Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I, may, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And verse 34, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. Now picture the scene here. Huge crowds pressing in on Jesus. Jairus, he's out in front of the procession. He's hurrying the master along. I imagine Jairus, he's just pushing people out of the way. Get out of the way. We're in a hurry. I, I need to get home. We're trying to get through. So we can get to my house where my daughter lay sick. And as he's pushing people out of the way, it's slow. It's probably frustrating. Meanwhile, here's this woman that she's breaking through the crowds from behind, wanting just to touch the hem of his garment. And as she does, Mark records that immediately she was healed. And then Jesus stopped the whole processional. And he would turn around and he would say, who touched me? And the disciples are looking at him saying, what do you mean who touched you? There's people all around you. There are people touching you all the time. What do you mean somebody touched you? But Jesus said, no, somebody touched me because I perceived power. Virtue has gone out of me. Because Jesus always recognizes, listen, he always recognizes the soul that is in agony. And you reach out and you touch Jesus, and he, re and he recognizes that touch immediately. And I do believe that today there are some, perhaps, in this place, on this day, that you're desiring to break through. Maybe you're saying, you know, I've been struggling for a long time now with this difficulty, with this problem, this relationship. It's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. It's been bleeding. I'm tired of hurting or causing hurt, being misunderstood or... or misunderstandings that come by my way. Uh, I'm tired of that draining. I feel unclean. I've just been cut off from enjoying the presence of the Lord just like she was cut off. She wasn't allowed to come into worship because of her hemorrhaging, because of the Old Testament law. And I believe that this morning right now that perhaps, perhaps maybe there are some that are saying, Lord, I need you. And right now, you're breaking through to touch him with childlike faith. And Jesus is saying to you, who touched me? I recognize your touch. Because he wants to minister to you. And then the scripture tells us that this woman had openly confessed all what had happened and she fell down at his feet trembling. You see, Jesus will not allow you to be a secret disciple for very long. Some people try. They, they want to be a secret disciple. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't want to tell anybody about it. But the Lord won't allow that for very long. He will bring you to that place of public confession, and therefore he will bring you to that place of intimate fellowship with himself because the two go together. And that's what he did with this woman. He brought her to a place of public confession, and then he spoke to her. Now, when we read that this woman had an issue of blood for 12 years, I don't think, unless we're really familiar with the culture of that day, I don't think we realize the seriousness of what she was going through. It was more than she just had a physical, you know, 
problem. Uh, uh, maybe we read this and we think she had some kind of infection of some sort and couldn't be treated, and that's kind of too bad. She must have been very weak. She was getting worse. She's not getting better. We do know that this woman is absolutely poverty-stricken. She would spend most everything that she has. She's financially opposite of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. He was wealthy. She was very poor. He had, Jairus, a prestigious position in the community. She had no position at all. Matter of fact, as I mentioned to you, under the law, that she would not be able to go and have worship there in the synagogue because she was considered unclean with this issue of blood, which meant that she was excommunicated from all religious functions of that day, and that was a very frightful thing to happen. The synagogue was the center of everything. It was the center not only of religious life, but the center of social life as well. To be excommunicated would mean that she was ostracized from that society. So along with being excommunicated, also if she was married, we don't know if she was or not, she probably would have been divorced from her husband. So here is a woman, because of her sickness, has lost literally everything. She has no money, she has no position, she has no acceptance, she's ostracized. If she was married, she was divorced from her husband probably, she's all alone. And she fights through the crowd with all of her strength that is left in her, which probably wasn't much. And she pushes her way to, and gets through all these people and she reaches out as Jesus is passing by, touching the fringe of his garment, and healing virtue immediately flows out of Jesus, and she was made whole, and Jesus stopped the whole procession, and I can just picture Jairus out there in front, and he turns around, and he knows Jesus had stopped because of this woman, and Jairus is probably thinking, why are you stopping? Why are you stopping? Why are you ministering to her? She's not even allowed to come to my synagogue. Why are you ministering to her? My daughter is dying. Hurry. And I know that there have been times in my life where I tried to hurry the Lord along. Come on, Lord, stop ministering to him, to her. I have a real need over here. Have you ever felt that way? Lord, I see you blessing this person, ministering to that person, just working amazing things in this individual. That's okay, but Lord, what about me? I got real needs. But Jesus did stop. As she reached out to touch him, and he said, Who touched me? And the disciples are saying, What do you mean, who touched you? There are people all around you. And Jesus said, Somebody touched me. There's a soul in need because virtue has gone out of my body. And the woman came and confessed everything. And Jesus looked at her. Now having bring her to that place of public confession, he looked at her. In verse 34, I draw attention again. And I'm sure that as he addressed her, th this must have been music to her ears. The first word that Jesus said to her were the most beautiful words that she had ever heard in her life. Jesus, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, the creator of the universe, this Jesus who loves us so much looked her right in the eyes, I bet. This woman who had been ostracized, who had been excommunicated, been divorced, who had been poverty stricken, who had virtually lost everything that she had, and he looked her right in the eyes and said, Daughter. He said, Daughter. Now, isn't that beautiful? And one word he took that ostracized, excommunicated, divorced woman and brought her into the heart of God. And he said, you're not ostracized anymore. You may be an outcast in society, but you're not an outcast to me. You may be divorced to your husband, but now you're married to me. You may have been excommunicated from religion, but I've accepted you and you have relationship. 
I've accepted you into the heart of God. And he looked her right in the eyes. I know that he did. And he said, daughter. Luke's gospel said that Jesus said, be of good cheer. Isn't that wonderful? Has the Lord looked into your eyes, into your hearts, and said, son, daughter, be of good cheer? And if the Lord had done nothing else, if she had never been healed at all physically, it would have been okay. Because that one word that Jesus said to her took away everything bad that was in her life. It was taken away when Jesus said, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And perhaps you're here this morning. Maybe you've never come to the Lord and surrendered yourself to Him. Do you know that He desires to say that same thing to you, son, daughter, as you come and surrender your heart and faith to Him? And maybe you're going through difficult times, maybe you're going through good times right now. But coming to Him in faith is the most important decision you will ever make. And recognizing that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness of sin, and come into right relationship with the Father, and that only comes through Jesus Christ. If anyone is here that, that you're not a son, a daughter, he, that he hasn't whispered that in your heart because you haven't come in faith, I pray that this morning you would consider as he desires to come to you and touch your heart. He's done the work. He went to Calvary's cross for you. The story continues here, verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Too late, Jairus. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher any longer. And I think one, another reason that Jesus perhaps stopped and ministered to this woman who got healed, who gave that public confession, because Jesus knew that Jairus is going to need to hear her testimony and see her testimony. Because right now his faith is faltering. As he gets word that his daughter is, is now dead, oh no, my daughter, I, I came and pleaded with Jesus. I got to him, I told him, let's hurry, and we're on our way, but now this. And perhaps Jairus is feeling frustrated because of this interaction with this woman. We wasted valuable time and, and all this interaction. My daughter's sick, and, and now she's, she's gone. But you see, it would be her testimony that would be used to build up his faith, the fact that, that Jairus had just seen a miracle through Jesus in this woman's life who was hemorrhaging. Maybe, perhaps, even though it seems like it's so impossible, perhaps Jesus can still help me. You see, testimonies are important, especially when people see that you are going through difficulties and then you are trusting in the Lord, you're looking to Him, and they see that God is working on your behalf, that His promises are true. It builds up their faith and encourages them as they're going through difficult times. And here is Jairus. It seems so impossible. In verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. Literally, keep on believing. The idea is don't start faltering. Keep on believing, even though it looks impossible. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child's not dead but sleeping. So here they are mourning and they're weeping. And they know that she's dead. In verse 40, as Jesus would say to them that she's, she's not dead, she's just only sleeping. And they ridicule him, verse 40. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. 
Matthew's gospel says they laughed him to scorn. That they had known that she was dead. They checked her pulse. They knew what dead was. And now you're saying she only sleeps? And they laughed him to scorn. They ridiculed him. And I want to make this point. That whenever Jesus wants to do a miracle in your life, or work in your life, there will be those that will come along and mock you. And they'll laugh and they'll ridicule. And they'll say, the Lord can't help you. Don't expect a miracle to happen. You say, you know what, this area of my life is dead. Maybe my kids are to the point of death. No, not physically, but spiritually. They're not interested in God anymore, the things of God. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe a marriage, maybe your business, whatever it might be. And and we go to Jesus and we say, Lord, help me. Help me with this thing, this person, this, this, this business. It's about ready to die. Things aren't right. And you pray and you pray and then words come back that your kid is in trouble, that your business is going to fold, that he left, that she left, whatever it might be. And we say, Lord, where are you? I want you to know this, that he's still traveling with you. He's still traveling with you. And he whispers in your heart, I love you, and I'm still working. But then the mockers come in and ridicule you. Hey, what are you going to do now? God can't work, and the situation you find yourself in is dead. Game's over. Give up. And Jesus' message to Jairus was, don't be afraid. Only believe. Keep on believing. And once again, we see that fear is to be met with faith. Faith is the answer to fear, believing that God knows what he's doing. And it is always the answer to fear. Only believe. And you do what Jesus did here. You move the mockers out. You move the mockers out that are coming along and and mocking. You move the mocking out of your heart and you look to the scriptures and you find the promise. And you stand on the promise and you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that you promised you'd never leave me or forsake me. You're still traveling with me, Lord. And Lord, I know that you're going to do what is best because you promised that you work all things out for good for those who love you or call according to your purposes. You kick the mockers out and the scorning in your heart because Hebrew tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So when the mockers start knocking, let faith answer, answer the door. So Jesus would take the mother and father of child along with Peter, James, and John in verse 41, and he took the child by the hand and said to her, Tele thy kumai, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. Can you imagine the emotions that they're feeling? Just this miracle. She you know, was raised from the, from the dead. And Jesus commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. You know, when our kids are sick and they start eating again, we know that they're going to be okay. They're getting better. And this was a confirmation that you need to give her something to eat. She's going to be okay. She's going to be better. Jesus robs death and brings this little girl to life. Maybe there's something in your life that feels dead and the Lord wants to raise it up this morning. Maybe he wants to do that work in your life. And what my prayer is that you would look to him and say, Lord, 
I want to turn to you because you're the one that can really help and you're the one that can work. And Lord, you're the one that's given me the promises. And you're a big God. You're the creator of the universe. So there isn't anything that's too big or too hard for you to bring life into that situation. You give it to the Lord. But if there is anyone that is here this morning that you haven't surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, know this, that you are dead spiritually. That's what the scriptures claim. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are dead, but he has made us alive through Jesus Christ. And as you surrender your heart to him, that's where you become spiritually alive, coming to Jesus. As he just, the Holy Spirit comes into you, you're born again by the Spirit of God, and that you experience life, life for the very first time, because he has changed you, made you a new creation and forgiven you. Wherever you find yourself in this morning, he is the creator of life, he's the author of life, and he desires to bring life into the situation that you find yourself in this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word and encouragement and your promises given to us. You are the one that's the author of eternal life. And I pray if there's anyone out there in a coffee shop that right now we'd just be still, we'd be listening, there'd be no chattering, even out in a coffee shop, but attentive. And Lord, I pray that us in here or anybody hearing this, that if there's anyone here in this building listening to this message that you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, that you have opportunity to do so this morning. That the good news of the gospel is this. That you are spiritually dead because of sin. It brings death. But Jesus Christ came to give you life. Forgiveness of sin. And it only comes through him. And Jesus went to the cross for you. And he died for your sins that you might have forgiveness. And be born again by the Spirit of God. And it comes by faith. A living faith. A surrender of heart. It comes by repenting. Quit going the direction you're going. And you turn to Jesus and you surrender your heart to Him. And you can do that today. If the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart. That you would open up that door. And He says, I will come in and sup with you. And you with me. And you pray in your heart this prayer. Jesus I am a sinner. I have sinned. And I am told to repent, and I do that now. I give my heart to you because you are the Son of God who died for my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. Lord, help me to live for you all the days of my life. And Lord, thank you for bringing life to me, true life, spiritual life. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And if anybody in this room prayed that prayer, if you're out in a coffee shop, you can raise your hand as well. We want you to raise your hand so we can bless.